0: You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao Show.
1: You should wait to come out? That you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that? That's a bunch of bull.
0: It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans.
2: We're getting that.
3: I've caused harm to the political agenda,
0: and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history.
2: Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world.
0: The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Meow.
4: Hello, 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 hello! Welcome to the program. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Jax, our producer, is in studio doing magical things, acting like a DJ or something. Waka waka. <laughs> That's right. Hey, it's hashtag uh, TBT or th-
0: Throwback Thursday. Do you do you do any of that stuff? You know, I did for a little bit, and now I'm. Now I just feel silly doing it. Now you are twenty two. Yeah, now I am <laughs> an adult.
4: I am thirty three, and I shared a throwback.
0: Thursday no, no, photo. it's good.
4: I no, um, I did realize though it was like kind of sad because n- with this whole like digital life, you take photos uh, from your phone, and so if you switch phones and stuff, if you are someone like me that's super lazy and doesn't properly store the photos, and the photos stay on the SD card on the phone that you were using. Well, if you don't transfer them anywhere, you lose the photos. So I think there's like about 12 years of my life that I'm missing. <laughs> sitting because in an SD card? They're sitting in some old Nokia somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Um, and other photos have just, I don't know, disappeared. But anyway, I did share a photo of myself when I was like, I think, two years old. You look the same. No way. You could tell it's you (laughs) by the expression. I should share it on Twitter for for those who are not my friend. For the world to see. On Facebook. But it is a cute Throwback Thursday photo. Um, I wanted to share with you before we start the show we have a great show by the way we have our good friend Adam Hudson he's coming back on the show and he's got a new article up uh, at Truth Out so we want to we, ha- we want to have an in-depth discussion with him about his article which is titled The Real Looting from Slavery to Policing and Beyond so very very interesting conversation today but before we get started I wanted to talk a little bit with you Jax about Bobby Jindal <laughs> the governor of Indiana uh, so it was just reported that you know lawmakers had shot down the religious freedom bill um and so in a desperate attempt to revive this he's issued an executive order this is coming from the guy who changed his name from piush piush jindal to Bobby after an episode of the Brady Bunch. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Facebook might have a problem with that, but, <laughs> you know, but to, to to kind of paint you the right picture of this guy, Bobby Jindal, um, you know, he converted to Catholicism in college for this girl that he fell in love with and then went on to say that he performed exorcism on her to save her. And he, he actually believed that he like, beat the crap out of Satan for her.
0: And I just, you know, it's like uh, and this person is an elected elected official. Oh.
4: Exactly. I mean, he's gone through d- several different religions. And I just want to say to Bobby Jindal, religion is not a fairy tale. So, your quest or your fight for
0: religious freedom, what does that even actually mean to you? Now you're just desperate. <laughs> I'd like to know what his like actual thoughts are because he's just an appeaser and he changes and picks whatever he wants because whatever he thinks is popular. I'm pretty sure, sure his name. Yeah, he's doing the same thing
4: as I am after work eating my curry, drinking my red wine, <laughs> watching the Brady Bunch. I'm <laughs> Bobby Jindal everybody. All right, let's get this program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. On the show with us, like I said earlier, Adam Hudson, he's back again and he 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 should just be a regular, dang it, he's so great. Adam Hudson, he's a writer for truth Out. His most recent article is titled The Real Looting from Slavery to Policing and Beyond. Adam, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Michelle. Glad
4: to be on. So, you know, the premise of the entire article and, and, and what we've been talking about for a really long time, right, is is pointing our attention to systemic racism. It's institutionalized. It's old. It's it's what I, you know, from what I know, old or it could be people, it could be companies, it could be organizations they do not like change, they don't want to actually give up power or to change it's like in it's like blood in in this whole uh discussion about systemic racism, right
1: yeah, exactly, yeah, and I think um in my article i you know as the title says from slavery to Policing and beyond, I think a lot you know uh when it comes to um systemic racism and particularly instances like what happened in Baltimore, Um, you know, I think it's it's important to not treat these as like isolated incidents. Um, And a lot of this, you know, this goes back to slavery, um, which you know, like imported over 12 million slaves from Africa to the Western Hemisphere including the United States. Um, And slavery was a real system. It was an economic system where um, you know, slaves were paid less and it, it really built the um the modern capitalist economy that we know of today. Um so slaves were exploited to grow cash crops like cotton and sugar and also different groups produced produce commodities that were sold in international markets for profit, which is a key component of capitalism. And there have been like other like books by academics and professors written on this topic. Um and also like when you're mentioning about like you know I guess blood built in the system, one one thing I mentioned in my my article is that doesn't get mentioned enough is um, the fact that Wall Street was originally built as a slave market um, before it became the, you know, the financial institution that we know today. This
4: part broke my heart. Like, I couldn't read further on, Uh, I mean, because it's it's so... It's so true. It's so real. It's there. But I think part of us, especially those, you know, who know that these banks have been built, not necessarily for us, for somebody else and their money. uh, But this part, talk about this part and how big banks have played into or have contributed to slavery.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think it was early 1600s. Um, it was the Dutch who originally, um, settled there and, in the area that we know of as Wall Street in Lower Manhattan. It was built as a um, place to uh, trade slaves, and also a lot of um, financial institutions um, profited from slavery. So, for example, one one example I mentioned is um, Aetna, the insurance company. They sold insurance to slave owners who wanted to protect their investments um, in their property, which were human slaves. So in case, like, a slave died aboard a slave ship, Aetna provided insurance to the slave owners in case that, you know, their investment was lost. Um, and slave owners were also compensated, you know, like for losing their property, which were human beings. And banks like, uh, like predecessor banks to um, what we know of as today as Wachovia and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, they, gave, they gave loans to slave owners and accepted slaves as collateral. So, um, like I was saying, like slavery was more than just like, you know, people working in the field. It was an actual real system a real economy and so there are a lot of people who, who profited from it and it built this economic system that we know of today so this this economy that we know of today in the united states wouldn't exist without um without slavery and i think that's on to think about like about how deeply entrenched this system is and wh- how it's why it's so um difficult to dislodge because from its very get-go um there are people who profited from it so it was more than just like you know whites hitting blacks, there was a real like economic and social and political interest in keeping that system in place.
4: Exactly. And and if we were to fast forward to today, I mean the exploitation has not stopped, obviously. Um, it's just changed to something else. It's not necessarily a, an institution that is using slavery or human beings and the idea of slavery as, you know, financial gains. But that exploitation has now become something else. What is that?
1: Yeah, so um, it, it's become—I it's, it's, think with slavery, it was kind of easy to pinpoint, like, you know— like, where the oppression was, right? So with slavery, it's like the slaves and the slave master. so it's easy to kind of identify, you know, who the oppressor and who the enemy is. With today, I think it's a little more complicated because it's not just, like, one particular enemy. Um, it's a multitude of institutions that kind of come together. And so um, I think, Baltimore, uh, in my piece, I wanted to focus in on it because, not just because of the Freddie Gray shooting, but also because I think the city itself um, exemplifies a lot of the systemic racial inequalities that you see pretty much throughout the United States. So um, there's a lot of racial discrimination housing policy uh, in Baltimore. So um, um, black people were refused uh, mortgages from from banks to live in certain areas. Um, And there was this practice known as redlining where, mortgages and other financial services were denied to African-Americans. And uh, their neighborhoods were designated with the color red on a map, on government maps, Mm -hmm. uh, to indicate, like, you know, that these are areas that you shouldn't loan to. Um, And so that played a role in, like, depriving black communities of wealth and economic resources to lift up their communities. So hence why you see a lot of, like, entrenched poverty and inequality in predominantly black and brown areas. A lot of it starts from, like, from that and so now, like with gentrification, um, you're seeing sort of like a similar process, but sort of um, you know rich people moving into big cities and kicking out um, largely predominantly black and other people of color. And um, there's also the racial wealth gap. Um, the median house household for white families is uh, somewhere around like $140,000, and for black households, the- median, sorry, like net worth. So net worth for whites is like net worth, median net worth is around 140000 For black households, net worth is 11000 So compare that, like 140000 to 11000 Right. in terms of net worth. Yeah, and so um, you know, the foundation of that started from slavery, but it continued through like I was saying, racial discrimination, housing policy, um, and also the financial crisis. So like there was a um, an article in the New York so Times. I guess it was, it was a suit against um, Wells Fargo, but it was discovered that Wells Fargo loan officers they deliberately targeted um, black people in Baltimore and the surrounding suburbs suburbs for um, toxic, high-interest uh, subprime mortgages. And uh, the loan officers they referred black people referred to black people as mud people, and to subprime loans as ghetto loans. And so. You know that. I think that encapsulates how these banks viewed these communities because, you know, in their minds, like you know, they're disposable. No one cares about them anyway. So if we put these toxic, high-interest subprime loans in these areas, no one's going to care. Um, and so, you know, Baltimore. And in fact, I think that played a role in like Baltimore getting hit after the housing bubble crash. And you see it also here too, in 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 the Bay Area, like certain right. areas. Right. And I And mean, it's pretty hard.
4: Yeah, I could say that about my hometown, Stockton, California, which was, I mean, I I know at one point, you know, a a city that was um, by Forbes magazine, actually, one of the saddest cities in the entire country when it came to foreclosures and this whole, you know, subprime loans. And most of the people who live in Stockton are, uh, well, they're of color. And, you know, black and brown neighborhoods. So, you know, I want to translate that to also, I mean, you talking about it's very specific uh, or specifically the housing policies here in this country and how that affects brown and black, um, you know, communities, but also like the credit system. And And I was reading an article about this and there's some similarities as far as like even LGBTQ people. Right. And we fall into this, especially the most marginalized and most vulnerable, which are obviously LGBTQI people of color. So let's just say, you know, when you talk about who gets approved for what, compared to, uh, say, for example, a CEO of some company, you know, who's probably Caucasian and white, who has probably, uh, you know, he's probably not even having to use his own credit to to get places in life, just because. Yeah, you know, he's a part of some company. When you you look at like everyday people, I mean, they get turned down for credit even if they have good credit.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, and it's the same thing um, with the housing bubble. I mean, you you have like even even black people who, you know, had like as you said, like had decent credit, they were given subprime mortgage loans. So, so it wasn't just like poor people; it was, you know, usually people of color, black people in general. And I think. You know, what the loan officer said in Baltimore, like, you know, was obviously really racist, but I think it was like a pretty explicit uh, admission of how they viewed these communities and what, you know, part of their goal was. And, you know, like, they they viewed those communities as largely disposable, like, no one cares. Right. Um, And, you know, that, that, like I said, ties back to slavery and uh, how black and brown people are viewed in this country. And, um, also, like, I mean, beyond housing, it's also the uh, the prison and policing system as well. like that's another yes, like
4: and I want to get yeah. into that. But we have to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we'll get to the policing part, and we'll talk about uh, just, you know, Adam's incredible article. we'll continue this discussion.
3: Don't go away. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready.
2: And now back to the Michelle Miao show.
4: Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this little Friday. I can't believe I didn't say that earlier. Huh. It's been so busy, but it is a little Friday. It's Thursday, May 21st. Uh, I'm Michelle Miao. On the phone with us is Adam Hudson. He, he is a writer for Truthout. His most recent article is titled The Real Looting from Slavery to Policing and Beyond. Um, and, and, and this is timely, right, the, your article that's coming out, because the media... It, it all comes down to the media and how it reports what's actually happening. I mean, I was reading an article the other day uh, and it was touching on the um, biker gangs and how the media has been reporting that is not necessarily, a, they don't use terms like riots. Uh, they, they, they call it a brawl, which to me, you know, minimizes it to like, you know, small little bar fight or something, which that isn't what happened, if you really know what happened in Texas. So, Adam, I wanted to, you know, for, for the purpose of people to understand why you wrote this article, I think it also has a lot to do with, uh, you know, the majority of those who had an opinion about what happened in Baltimore when it comes to, um, you know, the, the, the businesses being destroyed and the, the fires or the, the uh, robberies or stealing or burglaries or looting in your article, um th- you know that was really small compared to what's actually happening, right
1: yeah, and um you know and I, I don't want to like excuse like let's say you know small business being uh burned down or looted during a protest, um but I also think like you know when you have <clears throat> deep systemic oppression um it's I think it's inevitable that um uh, it's going to erupt in like chaotic anger. Um, and it's, it's not always going to take the most organized form. So, you know, for me, like like I said, I'm not saying that small businesses should get burned, but I'm saying that, like, having a, more, like, these sorts of, like, moral judgments in situations like this, like, oh, my God, like, it's so bad that the CVS got, like, looted. Um, to me, it doesn't really achieve anything. Because, I mean, let's say we all agree, that, like, yeah, it's bad that it got, you know, looted. Then what? Like, what? how does that help us? Understand the situation that's going on. At the end of the day, it really doesn't, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think like you know when it when it comes to like I said, deep systemic oppression, um, it's it's an that it's that's going to erupt in like very kind of like volcanic and and chaotic anger. And I think the real task and the reason why I wrote this article is like you know rather than issue these sorts of like cliche moral judgments, um, we 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 should delve delve deep into you know what was the, what, are the, what are the roots of it, and once we understand the roots of it, how can we address it? Um, and so, yeah, that was that was the main you know reason why I wrote this because you know I, I was seeing a lot on like the news um, about you know them focusing on looting, and, and as you point out, like it, uh, that was pretty relatively small compared to what what else was going on in the protest. Mm-hmm. And there are other people who like you know they're protecting the businesses, and afterwards they're helping cleaning up. Well it's the whole idea of like, oh, there are a bunch of just looters who are just trashing the street like well, you know, a little more complicated than that when you actually like look at what's happening on the ground.
4: Right. And right. And and you know, when we go back and we have a full on discussion about police brutality and the history of it in this country, I mean a lot of people I don't know if it's just, I I don't know what happened to to us, us as Americans, but we just refuse to look deeper than what our television screen is telling us. Because like, you know, just the other day I got into a cab and and somewhere somehow we got on the topic and discussion of what's happening in Baltimore. And the only thing that she can contribute to that conversation was really how bad she felt for the businesses. You know who the that were burned down, or in it, or how can they how can they do that to their own communities? And it's like, wait, you're actually not understanding what's happening here. So let's go right. to your article and let's talk about police brutality because you do an incredible job of connecting it, you know, back to even uh, slave economy.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, during slavery, uh, one of the main fears of slave masters were uh, slave insurrections. And I think in our, you know, when people talk about the history of slavery, that often gets left out. Where are the um, fairly constant number of slave insurrections, and the either from like armed insurrection or like smaller instances of rebellion, like let's say slaves just like some refusing to work or something like that. Um, so that was a that was the fear of slave Master because insurrections threatened the stability of the slave economy, and so in order to kind of keep to suppress those insurrections, um, massive levels of violence were inflicted upon, upon slaves to make them more, you know, docile and compliant. And so one key component of that were, uh, slave patrols. Um, and these slave patrols were they would, they would basically monitor and search and arrest the um, either runaway free or enslaved black people in order and punish them and return those slaves to their masters. And, um, The slave patrols, like, after slavery ended, a lot of their practices um, were basically transformed into the modern um, police departments in in the South. And um, even their practice of stopping and searching um, black people, slave patrols, like, their practice of stopping and searching them was actually a predecessor to uh, modern-day stop and frisk. So basically, the, the slave patrol system in slavery helped birth. The modern uh, modern police system that we have here in the United States, and um, in the North, where slavery in some areas did exist, like like Boston and New York City, but largely it was you know mainly contained in the South. Um, in the northern cities, uh, a lot of the policing was um, was largely inspired by the Brit, the London Metropolitan Police, but their main purpose in the cities were uh, social control of uh, so-called like dangerous. People who were seen as prone to being disorderly, violent, or doing immoral behavior. And usually those were black people, uh, Native Americans, immigrants, the homeless. And another part of policing was uh, to suppress labor uprisings. Because, you know, in conjunction with slave insurrections, there are also labor uprisings, and particularly the increasingly urbanized uh, northern cities. And so as that happened, there was more economic inequality between you know, the people who were very rich and the widening working class. So there were pretty consistent labor protests and riots. And so the police were usually there to keep them in control. And so um, our whole system of policing, a lot of it has its roots in suppressing labor protests and keeping black people and black slaves um, in check. And I think this whole, um, I think it's important to keep in mind with today's, Mass incarceration system because um, a lot of the a lot of the, the overall like function of police in the United States hasn't really changed, um, and I think now it's kind of transformed to what we what we see is uh, the war on drugs, um, this emphasis on zero tolerance policies, um, you know, arresting people for very very petty crimes and uh, putting really long and harsh sentences on them, um, mm-hmm. disproportionately arresting. Black people for drug crimes or other petty crimes. Um, A lot of that, I think, is is deeply connected to slavery and uh, the original role of police. And also, like the original SWAT teams, they were they were created in response to um, groups like the Black Panthers. Uh, So yeah, so the whole and and now we've seen like police increasingly militarized. And so um, you know, I think like we, I think people operate from. These, this sort of like myth that um I think they largely get from like usually crime shows and these cop shows and shows like Law and Order that like, you know, police are always out there to catch the bad guy and there are a bunch of bad people out there and the police are there to catch them. And that's not to say that it's not true, but I think, you know, a lot of times like particularly in um when it comes to convictions and prosecutions, a lot of cases in court end in plea bargains. I think mm-hmm. like somewhere like ninety percent of them and so it's like if you should look at a show like Law and Order, like right. if you really want to be accurate, they would settle exactly. with a
4: plea bargain. Be it, right? I just I was just about to say, I mean, you don't have to be a legal scholar, or an attorney, or or in government to to know this. Even just by watching TV today, you see the traps and the way that you know kind of the system all works out. That even innocent people have to take some some type of bargain just to avoid jail time or for whatever reason, you know, and it just kind of corners you whether you're guilty or innocent. Um, you know, we only have a few minutes left, so I kind of want to start concluding. But there is a fact, you know, that you have here um, in your article, which it, generally people know this, but this is the truth. Black men are six times more likely to be incarcerated than white men. And us having this discussion here openly on the air and openly with our friends and if we're, you know, uh, involved with a movement like Black Lives Matter, the point is to not make our white friends and our colleagues feel guilty and or feel resentful. I mean, we want actual change. Adam, what is that change?
1: Uh, That's a tall word. (laughs) I mean, because it's such such a, like, you know, complex system instead of problems, but I think um, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has so far shown to be, at least today, like, probably the most resilient social movement when it comes to challenging these issues, and I think it was probably earlier today, I think it's still going on, there's a group of um, of black women who shut down the financial district in uh, in San Francisco to um basically raise the words about the, the number of black women killed by police and um you know I think that and I also think with with black lives matter um what's been unique about it so far is that it's forced a response from the from the political elite so you have politicians like you know former president bill clinton and now hillary clinton saying they want to end you know the era of mass incarceration, um, but you know the fact is that like, a lot of Clinton's policies led to um, this mass incarceration system right, that we have right now. Um, but I, I think it is—it is kind of like this movement is—it's um, forcing people in, you know, the political class to respond. And so I think you know out of all out of everything that's happened, like this movement, I think probably shows you know, the most hope in mm-hmm. terms of like actually pushing for, for real chase. I think, like I said, the fact that they, that they're getting some sort of response either, you know, some, it doesn't, it's not always like, you know, Paul politicians say all kinds of things, right? Yeah. But the fact that they're paying attention and even the prosecutor, um, Marilyn, uh, Marilyn Mosby, I believe, uh, who charged the six officers, um, for, for killing Freddie Gray. Um, you know, she even said that that she, you know, she heard the protesters cry for you no know, justice, no peace. And so, I think as long as like this movement keeps going, um, I think I think it's going to be a catalyst for real change. So I think you know my my ultimate faith is usually social movements. I think throughout history, social movements, social movements have proven to be, you know, the main one of the main forces for driving like real systemic changes. So I think. We're at a moment right now that we're witnessing one right now, and that's within the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's the, what happened in Baltimore, um, I don't think it was just a riot. I think it was part of a growing uprising that's happening in this country. And I think right. black people and other people of color, and people, you know, white people, whoever, like, I think a lot of people are getting really, really fed up with this mass incarceration system and the police keep kill, the fact that police keep killing people every day with, with no accountability. So, yeah, people reach a tipping point. And I think it's, it's, now is the time for, like, this country has to get really, really serious about changing the way, um, changing the way it, it, it runs itself.
4: Adam, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for that incredible article.
1: Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for
4: having me. Adam Hudson, he's a writer for Truth Out. And you can check out his article there at TruthOut, Out, or I should say Truth Slash uh, And the title of the article, uh, as I said before, it's, it's awesome. It's The Real Looting from Slavery to Policing and Beyond. You can follow Adam on Twitter at AdamHudson5. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Gay Vanity Wedding Show returns to the Bentley Reserve Sunday, April 19th, with a San Francisco style fashion show and aisles of vendors. You'll come away with ideas for a wedding that represents the unique personalities of the two of you. Buy tickets at gayvanityweddingshow.com.
2: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back! Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our next guest is the executive director of Rainbow Day Camp, and Rainbow Day Camp is special in a lot of ways uh, because it's one of its it's one of a kind. Actually, really, uh, it's a camp that it, it specializes in uh, providing programs for gender variant children and transgender youth. So I'm very excited to welcome you to Sandra Collins. Sandra,
2: welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Michelle.
4: Yes, no, absolutely. I am excited to speak with you. I think that what Rainbow Day Camp is doing is just so special. It's so unique, so new. Uh, tell us all about Rainbow Day Camp.
2: So we are launching our first camp this summer, so I'm both excited and extremely scared because we've not done this before, but we have a great program, um, Camp Director, A.K. Kramer, who's been doing this for years um, with Camp Galileo. So, in that sense, I'm really confident, but we're going to be opening um, on June 22nd. So, it's a two-week program. It's a pilot year. So, next summer, it might be going longer. And we've got about 25 families joining us from all over the Bay Area, ranging in ages from five. So, about um, 17, we'll have a youth program, and then we'll also have a teen program. Um, The youth program will stay at the school at Prospect Sierra School, who's partnering with us, Um, and then the teen program will be traveling all over the Bay Area, going to AIDS game or doing um, sort of takeovers um, at local cafes or going over to the Japanese Tea Garden. So, we're really excited about providing a safe space um, for gender-diverse youth, um, but also allowing... The used to be sort of their authentic spouse um, and providing also jobs for um, transgender and genderqueer um, teens and um, college students. So that's also been a real um, important priority for me as well.
4: Congratulations. You know, the media has been doing a wonderful job, or I shouldn't say wonderful, a better job at yeah. uh, at least telling stories of transgender youths and, and uh, you know, and gender identity and addressing those issues. Um, you know, what are your thoughts as far as like, you know, the need for a camp like this? I mean, I, I think that kids have been expressing themselves for a really long time, but as uh, adults, maybe we didn't see the signs. Obviously most, a lot of parents actually don't really see the signs. Um, and so I see this as part of, you know, progress and education for parents
2: That's true. I think that, um, you know, I'm an ally and a parent, too, a transgender youth, um, and there's also gender-diverse youth and then gender-creative youth. and There's a whole spectrum of sort of gender identity, Um, and I think for the camp, I mean, ideally, um, gender-diverse youth could go to any camp, right, and there would be a safe space for them. Um, no matter where they are um, in our world. Um, and so it wouldn't matter. But I think for our camp, what I noticed is that when my daughter went to, you know, a typical summer day camp um, and she was outed for being transgender, um, it was really hard for her. And so she kind of went stealth. She didn't tell anybody, but then she was outed by a friend. And that became a real hard point because I realized that having a secret like that was really harsh. spent so much psychic energy and emotional energy keeping that secret that she couldn't just sort of enjoy and play um, because in our society still there's a lot of stigma attached about being your authentic self if you're seen as being different and so that code switching of, you know, am I still safe here, am I going to be accepted here, both in terms of the adults and the other peer group. Um, we're not quite there yet. I mean, we are in the Bay Area, and there's still a lot of acceptance. But even within our micro society you know, microclimates and our different groups, it's still not, you know, you're not. It's still not clear yet. about which adults will accept you and which peer groups will accept you. So I still think um, we've come a long way. Yes, um, yet there's still a lot of more work to do. So I think. Um, the idea between, behind my camp is that it's absolutely clear that this is a safe space, um, which you get to be your authentic true self, um, and no questions asked. Um, you know, there are cisgender allies here. There's also the huge spectrum about, you know, what kind of gender identity the kids come as. And so the counselors are going to be trained in terms of social emotional curriculum, as well as gender specials, um training the counselors um, and the counselors themselves. Are, uh you know are have a range of gender identities um so that there'll be a lot of mirroring and windowing in terms of um the whole camp itself so that um there will be n- it is entirely a community of safe space <laughs> um so that you know the youth won't feel that kind of need to sort of code switch but it is a completely a community of people that will be able to hold these youth um so that they can sort of practice um being um, held in a really completely safe space, um, and that as we get to um, encourage this, um, hopefully they'll feel that reinforcement so that they'll feel brave as they go into the world. You know, I mean, they ha- promote most youth in their families they are feeling this, but not, not every youth has that, you know, um, reinforcement. So, hopefully... You know, their family are reinforcing their gender identity, um, or a friend is reinforcing that gender identity, or a a teacher is that they have some kind of connection, or a therapist, or somebody is, um, and that the more that their story is being reinforced, um, they'll be able to go into this world um, reinforced. But that's the idea behind this camp.
4: So the Bay Area Rainbow Day Camp has uh, is comp- comprised of parents, caregivers, psychotherapists, teachers and friends um, who are all coming together for this. And, and, you know, I want to talk a little bit about public spaces and, and even, you know, public schools and other camps that do not specialize or work with gender variant children. Uh, you know, how is it different. Uh, Obviously, there are no policies or I I see very little education in public spaces that offer, uh, you know, children to learn about the differences in each other. Um, But I'm wondering, you know, specifically as far as like the day camp, I'm sure of it that you've got special programs. um, Or is there, you know, class that uh, kids go through that they can learn, you know, that it's okay to be their authentic selves?
2: Right. I mean, on the board we have um, therapists who are um, psychotherapists and they're gender specialists in um, the in mind therapy group. So we're really proud of that. Um, we also have um, lawyers who are pro bono lawyers on the trans you know transgender law center. So um, and we've got um, you know I'm just so proud of the board itself that they bring all these specialized skills. Um, and that within the curriculum itself, um, we will have. The ability, and we've got, um, you know, the Ruler Center to um, focus on social-emotional curriculum, and that we'll be able to bring um, ways of talking about the change-maker curriculum from Prospect Air School, about how we can talk about building empathy um, across allies and um, gender-diverse kids, about you know how we are same and how we're different, you know about. Um, you know, not just about gender, but about, you know, race and social economic status. And it's about how we build a community, um, both within the camp, but about our larger, you know, community outside of the camp. And we start from there about what does it mean to be in this world, um, as fellow human beings. And so, what's going to make the camp unique is starting from there about, um, um, you know, I mean, it's going to be a fun camp. It's not going to be, <laughs> we don't want it to be heavy in that sense. Right. Um, because, you know for the sense of the camp is that we want to bring you know a safe space a fun space it's a summer day camp in which these kids already have carry this um this sense of being you know different, but we want them to be fun, but we also want to give them some real sense of resilience and um uh, the ability to deal with mistreatment um so we you know we'll get we'll be able to break down these explicit sessions um implicitly and explicitly, but it's about what does it mean to be a change maker how does it you know how is it to have these empathetic skills um, and build it into this fun curriculum um, that's based on you know art, movement, dance. Um, you know, and some of the teachers are going to be. You know, we're going to have Sparkle um, Thornton, who's an amazing yoga teacher and an amazing musician herself, come. Um, um, Maya Gonzalez, who's done you know great art um, and the Call Me Tree, which is a you know completely gender-neutral book and done in Spanish. has come and be a an um so it's going to be a fun camp, but we will have these you know um age appropriate lessons woven in um to it uh, the camp about you know what does it mean to be an empathetic changemaker um so that hopefully by the end of the week students will feel um empowered and resilient um to stand up for themselves um in a way that's based on compassion and empathy i, um, I- I I mean I'm I'm
4: thinking you know the the huge role you play and this is probably to me, at least, you know, you, you're like a hero. <laughs> it's just so oh. incredible and great uh, what you're doing. Michelle Meow, we're speaking with Sandra Collins. She is the executive director of Rainbow Day Camp. And uh, we mentioned that the, the day camp is right here in the Bay Area. It's in the East Bay, in fact. Um, You know, in which I, I kind of want to talk about that. When we look at, you know, location, right, one would think that a, a good location for a day camp like this might be somewhere near, yeah, closer to San Francisco or whatnot, um, but I I actually think the East Bay is a perfect location.
2: Yeah, me too. I'm I'm totally East Bay girl. <laughs> yeah,
4: I mean, well, yeah, and it's like, uh, and and we know that you know there are the many families on the the East side of that bridge, um, but uh, also very diverse families. So I'm guessing you know the the day camp probably sees. An incredible you know uh, range of all kinds of families right,
2: right, and we um are really committed to financial aid, so we have um you know to be honest, we have some some youth that are are in the foster care system, and so for me, it's been a real priority to have scholarships and I've been fundraising um, like like anything um to make it um across um you know, different ethnic groups, um, different, you know, social economic status, um, to really make it diverse. Um, it's not as diverse as I like it to be, but it's our first, um, year. And so going forward, um, I'd like it to, you know, to build a bigger base. Um, but it's our pilot year. So I think, um, I heard Ashanti Branch talk <laughs> a couple weeks ago, you know, all I can do is all I can do and all I can do is enough, but it's, been a great mantra about how do you build these grassroots movements, and I think that what I like to do going forward is really bring the message about you know gender diversity, um, you know not just benefiting you know gender diverse kids and transgender kids, but all children. That the more that we can sort of loosen up these boxes about um, gender for all children back into the community, right? So that children who are on the spectrum, that you know it's not just about um, you know, these hyper-masculine and hyper-feminine boxes, that there are kids who want to be able to express themselves all along the gender spectrum, um, because I know that there are boys who feel, you know, on the masculine side, who want to be more emotional, but feel like they have to be sort mm-hmm. of tough, you know, um, sporty boys, but, but they don't necessarily want to express themselves that way. Um, so the more that we can loosen up gender for everybody, everyone in our society can benefit, and this I've watched the film The Mask We Live In, and I think that that's sort of what the camp is about, too. It's about creating safe spaces for gender diverse youth, but it's also about the larger message about gender overall in our society, how everybody is kind of losing out when we sort of create these really strict boxes for gender. So, how do we, as a community, have these really explicit conversations about gender so that everybody can benefit? Um, not just for our gender diverse youth, but for all children and all youth um and and that 's sort of where I feel like as a community, we need to sort of rally for our kids overall um and and that would be great so how do we have conversations for our community, and how do we bring these messages back into our community right. um, because you know sometimes these messages get taught in our schools, but how do you know for the most part um how do we create educational systems outside of the schools. Um, how do we, you know... How
4: oh, yeah. We, how, yeah. Schools, I, right? You're saying this and I'm looking back at my own childhood and, uh, I, I mean, I had to redo years of damage of, you know, just being bullied or, or even from adults or parents who... Who, th- who made me into, you know, who checked me into a box. I didn't like wearing dresses. I didn't like, right. you know, doing any of those stuff. And then I get become an adult. And I, re- I just realized you said something that was kind of powerful to me just now that I realized that, you know, I learned to hate myself and my body and being yeah. a girl, you know, at such a young age. And it took me until I think 31 years. At thir- my 31st oh, birthday dear. was when I finally was like, you know what? The bajigglies and the curves and these khakis and my, you know, (laughs) sweater
2: vests, they work for me. They're wonderful. Right, right, right. i slightly butch, right. And I, I, you know, I'm, exactly, and sort of I, I realized, like, I was kind of, butch, um, but, you know, I'm kind of heterosexual, but I I realized, like, I was not a dressy girl, but my mom put me in dresses, and it wasn't until, like, my 20s and 30s that I realized, like, I'm actually kind of more masculine sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really like to wear dresses unless I actually have to, you know, right. Like, where do we learn how to educate ourselves around gender and identity and expression and sexual orientation once we leave college, right, and um, as in terms of how do we do civic education, um, and that's kind of the next step for me is about how do we bring these messages back to the community um, in terms of other adults who have influence on children um, because that's, you know, the, the, those people who are influencing um, our youth lives, that's the next step because they're really powerful um, because the children know who they are, and they're perfect just the way they are. Mm-hmm. That's such a huge influence on these children's lives um, that that's sort of the next step. And, or even the young adults, right? Um, you don't want to hate yourself, but you have that, you know what I mean? It's like, how do you yeah. come into your own self-love and self-care in a way that shouldn't be damaging? Um,
4: yeah, I told my mom the other day. It was like, you know, as a young teenager, she told me that I gave her a hard time, you know, as a female Teenager, I said I probably wouldn't have been so mean if you just let me be and let me do, you know, be who I wanted to be. Um, Sandra, I love what you're doing, and thank you so much for joining us here today to talk about Rainbow Day Camp. Um, uh, you know, for for those out there, Rainbow Day Camp is a nonprofit. This is their first year, so if you what you heard today obviously is incredible so if you want to support them visit rainbowdaycamp.org uh Sandra thanks so much for being with us thank you so much Michelle for giving me the opportunity to talk about the camp thank you again the Michelle Miao show continues after this
5: don't go away
3: Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by
4: Weatherford BMW.
2: And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back, happy little Friday, I'm Michelle Meow. Jax is in studio. We had a great show today. Uh, you know, I think the the topic that we discussed today here isn't so much focused on racism, but intersectionality is is part of you know, what we do here on this show. And we all are affected by the same issues. So very, very happy to, to offer that interview and Adam Hudson for joining us. Uh, but now I think since it's Little Friday, we should, Jax, play the ultimate lesbian playlist for people to go out there and have a good weekend, right? As decided by us. <laughs> so, um I I I you know, I I think that uh, one song that I used to just get so pumped about, like when I went out there in the clubs. In the clubs. <laughs> in the club. That's right. It's this song by Fifty Cent in the Club. Um, I remember Going to a party in San Jose, California, and the evening was called Octopussy. Oh, this sounds promising. <laughs> and I met a girl, you know, while the song was on and she was like, "It's my birthday."
0: Singing the lyrics to, yeah. you. <laughs> "Let's play it." You we're just know, excited we're listening. Ideas, really? Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like we're going to go You know, I've to to never club. seen this music video. <laughs> it's as bad as I hoped it would be.
3: Wait, where, where, where's the lyrics? Uh, where's the lyrics? There you uh, go. There he, uh, he is.
0: I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Everyone's just singing along with the worst lyrics ever. Yeah, all I
4: said while I was on the dance floor with her, because I said I don't know how to dance. I was like, "It's your birthday!
0: It's your birthday! It's your birthday!" Just stating facts.
4: <laughs> all right, um, another song actually that used to get uh, my friends and I, a bunch of, I mean, lesbians, who would seriously stuff ourselves in this like 1980 something Bronco. Uh, yeah, oh, super wow. lesbian mobile. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and you know, this song made us just. I loved it cuz i was the shortest of all the chicks that i was hanging out with. So when this song came on i would get in the middle of them and it was like six milkshakes or six breasts 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 plural <laughs> slap in my face. My milkshake brings uh, oh, what 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 <laughs> this is your real
0: tbt not that baby photo. <laughs> <laughs>
4: See, get your Friday started. Woo, milkshake. Little little Friday. Little little Friday. Okay, your turn, your turn. I'm going to save my my last one.
0: Okay, this one, this is always a good one to just scream at the top of your lungs or try and hit these notes on the dance floor and make (laughs) eye contact with someone. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe do that really bad reel in move. Oh, I did that before. I'm sure. Or the the come hither finger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is pure well, seduction.
4: But, but this is a great lesbian song at the club because there's a lot of like hip rolling and, and yeah. thrusting that goes into this song. Not that like gay men don't like it. but I feel like gay men
0: are a little bit more like I don't know. They're Okay, well speaking of gay men face. in the cash show this song is the song I always hear when I go there. <laughs> and all the bars have uh, video screens where they play the music videos. Okay, so, oh, you know what I know what gay men do to songs like this? They don't
4: do hip thrusts. They don't have to. They just do penis flings. Ah, oh. yeah, no, I'm serious. No, yeah, or that, they, or they'll like move like you know a, a peck or something and go do 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 yeah. Doo. It's more of a bob. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if you got this one for. I wanted I wanted to give you a song. Uh the this the, a song that I remember so much because it was it was the first time I had sex with a woman. Oh, wow. Do you have Enrique Iglesias on there? <laughs> oh,
0: I really hope this is not a true story. It's a true story. Enrique, okay, where were you? In the dorms
4: at San mm, Francisco State. Now I understand. Yeah. And it was um Hero, <laughs> oh, I can be your hero, baby.
0: Oh yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Of course, there's an advertisement. <laughs> you can continue to sing it while we wait for the real en- Enrique. No, I really
4: it. I, it was the first time I, I I hooked up with a girl, and she just had Enrique Iglesias on repeat. And I I you know what do I remember from that first night? I remember. Wow, geez, there's a lot of hair.
0: <laughs> so this was like an emotional hookup. We were like gazing into each other's eyes. If I asked you to dance.
4: Oh my God. Um, I want? was staring at something, but it wasn't her eyes. <laughs> I was just so like, well, could we just sit here and cuddle and I'll be your
0: hero, yeah, this babe. Yeah, so...
4: Oh. Would you
0: say First time I'm hooking up with so this song? With a girl, yeah. Didn't you play a song when you,
3: you hooked up with a girl?
4: Let's listen for a little bit. Would you
3: if I touched your lips? Or would you laugh? Oh, please tell me this. Now would you die for the one you love? Or hold me in your
0: blood. Yeah, I can't. uh, I can't can't be your hero, (laughs) baby. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most dramatic music video. Well, uh, yeah, I mean it's Michelle Meow. Like, what else would I be playing? The (laughs) first time I've you know had sex with a girl. Um, so we have time for one more song. Oh, and the best for last. (laughs) This makes me want to go out tonight Oh yes it does And it makes you just want to like Innocently dance with someone else Other than your girlfriend (laughs) Innocently (laughs) You know I
4: I could have a girl tell me Oh yeah I'm hot Okay, (laughs) Don't ya (laughs) I have a true story This song So I was at the club, again, (laughs) I went out a lot when I was young, and I came out, there was a girl um, that really wanted to hook up, but I had a girlfriend at the time, and she tried to kiss me, and I was like, no I can't, I have a girlfriend, so she's like, singing this song as it's on, yeah, she's like, don't you wish a girlfriend
0: was persuasion."
4: and then she licked the side of my face. It's a
0: good thing I did not. I do not have do a penis. What do you do when someone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so th- that's a turn on then. Well, I, I wouldn't be able to control it. She was pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> Licking your face. Huh? So tell. This is your song actually. You tell me a story. I don't know if I have like one story. This is just that one when you like make an eye contact with someone. Has any girl ever? Hit on me, yes. With this song playing, no, just in my head. This is playing. (laughs) (laughs) When I walk into a club, you know.
4: Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Strut (laughs) in. This is like your like, yeah, anthem. uh, This is like your um, uh, go face, right? Like I'm pumped, then ready to go. I'm ready to lock in some woman tonight. (laughs) Woman. (laughs) So that was, um, that's the ultimate lesbian playlist right there. There was even a love song in there, you know, if you want to slow it down. But for the most part, you want to get something
0: happening, some action. You can play this and have us talking over. (laughs) In the bedroom. In in the club, in the bedroom, in the car.
4: Now I just sound like I just got to America. (laughs) Um, Share with us your ultimate playlist, if you like, head to MichelleMeow.com. I thought that was just fun, you know like, I mean, there's some truth to all these songs that we uh, that we have here, so thank you so much for joining us, enjoy your weekend tomorrow is Fof, hashtag Fof, friends on Fridays, uh, I'd like to give thanks to Adam Hudson who joined us today, and of course our sponsor, Pacific Fertility Center I will see you next week, Monday, for an Alan Touring special so you don't want to miss that See you then, guys!